This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Can you guys hear me? Okay. <laughs> um, I saw a few of you a couple of weeks ago at Garrison, and I recognize some other faces. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter, and I'm from the Zen Center of Philadelphia. Um, and um, I appreciate the invitation to come and, and give a talk. And since... Um, since I'm standing in for Barry, I think it's most fitting that I start with a quote from Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, so that way you guys will feel at home. So Wittgenstein recognized and respected the limits of language and logical thought. In his earliest work, which was written in a World War I British POW camp, he wrote, what can be said at all can be said clearly, and what we cannot talk about we must pass over in silence. The Buddha sometimes wrapped his teaching in silence, holding up a flower or sitting without a word in response to a question, stopping at the frontier of what we cannot talk about. But poets aren't satisfied to pass over what Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein said was unsayable, even as he somehow sensed its presence. Listening to the unspeakable silence that's always and everywhere around us and in us, Poets call on words to say what can't be said. Philosophers can't pull it off, but poets can. That's probably why Zen takes a poetic slant on things. In today's talk, I want to talk about a, a, a poem by Emily Dickinson that crosses the line dividing what can and cannot be spoken. Tell all the truth, she wrote in another poem, but tell it slant. You can't tell it head on with well-defined concepts that sum up facts in measured words. You can't hear today's poem that way either. As I read it, listen to the sound of the words, not just to their meaning. Let them flow through you. Don't stop to puzzle out the poem's sense or its nonsense. Let all of that go. Listen with the mind of Zazen as though listening to silence which has no place to grab onto. 
Just let the words come and let them go and see what's left behind when the words give way to silence. So Emily Dickinson didn't give titles to her poems. Um, and recent editors had collected them chronologically and numbered them. So this is by one collection, number 598, and by another collection, it's number 632. You can pick your favorite number, and that's the title. Here's the poem. The brain is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease, and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb, as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. I'm going to read that again a little bit later just so you've got it in your heads when I do a little bit of sort of a mix of exegesis and, and dharma. Emily Dickinson, if you don't know, lived from 1830 to 1886. With the exception of a year at Mount Holyoke Female Seminary and a few excursions not far from home, she spent her entire life in Amherst, Massachusetts. And within that small New England town, much of her life took place in the house of her father, the prominent lawyer and politician Edward Dickinson. And within that house, especially as she grew older, her life unfolded in an upstairs bedroom furnished with a sleigh bed, a wood stove, and a small writing table in front of a window that looked out on the town cemetery. She lived a largely hidden life. After her death, Dickinson's sister of Lavinia discovered in a drawer nearly 1,800 poems, handwritten on sheets of folded paper the poet had sewn into booklets. Only 10 of the poems had been published in her lifetime, anonymously and probably without her permission. The poems took an entirely new approach on prosody, reflecting Dickinson's fierce and lonely independence. Syntax, diction, pronunciation, and word choices were fresh even disorienting. Thomas Higginson, the editor of the first collection of her verses, took it upon himself to fix the poems, 
correcting what he regarded as misspellings and mistaken capitalizations, smoothing out rhymes and meter, and substituting sensible metaphors or different words to clarify sense. In a letter to a friend, he called the poetry remarkable, though odd. Like the poet herself, the poetry was strange, almost alien, even as it remained somehow familiar. It wasn't until 1955 that an uncorrected version of Dickinson's poems was published by the literary scholar Thomas Johnson, who wrote of the earlier editor. He was trying to measure a cube by the rules of plane geometry. It's easy enough to domesticate Emily Dickinson's strangeness with words that purport to explain or medicalize her. Spinster, recluse, hysteric, agoraphobe, morbid obsessive, vestal daughter, victim of patriarchy, mad woman in the attic. Not that these descriptors and diagnoses are off the mark, but they fall back on conventional categories of thought and understanding, which Dickinson was trying to break out of. She challenges our linguistic and conceptual complacencies. Drawing on ready-made words and ideas can be a way of dismissing strangeness, of turning away from and thereby missing the mystery hidden in everyday life, or as we put it, in life as it is. At base, Dickinson was a religious writer who rebelled against conventional American Christianity, but her rebellion was largely solitary and inward and poetic. When everyone around her church authorities, townspeople, her own family, practiced a one-dimensional religion, professing a belief system canned in a creed and a catechism, Dickinson cast aside the rules of plain geometry and practiced paying attention without the benefit of received and prefabricated word formulas. That's what we do. On the cushion and off, we're always looking as honestly as we can at experience, at what's happening, at what it means to be awake and alive as a human being in this very place, at this very moment. We're not worried about doctrinal formulas and Zen ethical recipes. We just breathe in and breathe out and face the wall. In Dickinson's case, it was a graveyard. Her religious sensibility, 
Her poetry is acute, multidimensional, impossible to pin down, often sly and ironic, but with a humor that was unfailingly kind. In the poem we're looking at today, there's no punctuation except for dashes, 22 of them amid 72 mostly one-syllable words in three stanzas consisting of four lines each. It's as though the words were strung along a line connecting sound and meaning which are neither fixed nor final. And because there are no periods anywhere, there's no endpoint, no settling into a definitive pronouncement, which is very much like our views of Emily Dickinson and our own lives too. So let me read the poem one more time and remember to listen to it with the mind of Zazen. The brain is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease, and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them, blue to blue, the one the other will absorb, as sponges, buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them, pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. The three stanzas have pretty much the same structure. Each starts with a simple sentence about the brain, comparing it to something vast, something boundless. At first, the distinction between the two is unmistakable, even if the basic claim feels untrue, if not impossible. The stanza then introduces ambiguity and uncertainty. And by the end of it, words seem to have fled from their meaning and opposites coincide. What was false becomes true. What was impossible turns out to be real. What started as two is now one. But oneness isn't the final conclusion. It's not an end point. The poem ends with a dash, not a period. It isn't so much a declaration about the identity of relative and absolute as it is a kind of inside out religious experience. The dissolution of blessed assurance a palpable, live-action coalescence of the finite and the infinite as it happens. 
The poem begins with a simple declarative sentence. The brain is wider than the sky. To common sense, that's clearly false. The sky extends from horizon to horizon and beyond and vastly overarches the brain. You could say the mind encompasses the sky insofar as mind contains a conceptual representation, a mental picture of the sky. But the poem doesn't use the word mind. The poet chooses the word brain, the organ of consciousness in, contained inside the skull box. And heads stick up into the sky with little chance of bumping up against the edges. And yet the poem asserts the brain is wider than the sky. In what sense could this, this impossibility be true? The lines that follow explain. For put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease. Certainly, if you put a very big box beside a very small box, you know right away the small one will fit inside the big one. In fact, the big sky contains nearly 8 billion little human brains with ease. Perfectly obvious until the poet slips in ambiguity. The one the other will contain is incontrovertibly true, but the words leave open which of the one, brain or sky, or which of the two, brain or sky, is the one and which is the other. Which will contain which? The poem doesn't say and leaves the reader wondering about what it is that's being claimed and what it is we think we know. And what does it even mean to put them side by side? How do you place the endless sky beside the circumscribed brain? Where would you carry out such a comparison, except in the mind, except in your head as a thought experiment? And then, almost as a side, as an aside, the poet sneaks in a third element. One will contain the other, it says, and you, beside. Who is that? You, the poet? You, the reader? You, the generic everyman? Does beside mean in addition to or situated next to brain and sky? Side by side by side. Is the self contained beneath the giant bell jar of the sky? Is you contained in the brain, enclosed within the sphere of the skull, or in the mind, whose boundaries are where exactly? 
inside the skull box, outside the bell jar. Whichever is the case, you is dislocated from the center. From the center of what? To the periphery and alongside of where? The second verse has the same form as the first and follows the same trajectory from the clarity of two-ness, brain and sea, to the indeterminacy of oneness. Instead of one being contained in the other, in this verse, when you hold them blue to blue, one is absorbed by the other. But the words don't specify which blue is which. Being the same color, blue sea, blue sky, and presumably blue brain, all vanish into the blue. Everything gets soaked up. Entire seas as sponges absorb water contained in a bucket. The one the other will absorb. What remains? The one? The other? Is the sea absorbed into the sponge? Or is it the other way around? Is it two? Or is it one? Or is it something else? Or anything at all? A sponge with all its holes and crannies, looks a lot like an amorphous, drab brown brain. And brains, we know, absorb everything. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. The 10,000 things. And you, beside. The poem seems like a working model of consciousness. Who is you in the model? The dreamer at the center of the self-centered dream? Or just another dream within a dream? And who is the dreamer of that dream? Where is the boundary marking this side from that side? This blue from that blue? This hand in which you hold that, and that hand in which you hold this. Where is the you that's beside what you hold in your hands? Like one word is beside the next word in a sentence, separated by an empty space. The third and final stanza follows the same line from the clarity of side-by-side -side multiplicity to undifferentiated unity. And it does so by invoking the Christian jargon word, God, suggesting the poet is taking up a religious theme until she defines the term or seems to. The brain is just the weight of God. The words constitute a perfectly clear sentence. But how do you wrap your head 
around what those words mean. A human brain, on average, weighs about three pounds. What does it mean to say the mass of gray matter inside your head is just the weight of God? How can spirit, which is how God is typically defined, be said to have mass, which is a property of matter? Matter is the opposite of spirit, flesh the opposite of God. All of our reason rebels, but the poem never flinches. For heft them, pound for pound, how can you take a brain in one hand, as Hamlet did a skull? Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. You can do that. But how do you heft God in the palm of your hand and compare the two side by side, pound for pound? You can't imagine it. Yet in this poem, you are doing just that. Not drawing a line to define the divinity the divinity with words and phrases, but weighing God in the scale of your hands. What does that even mean? On the one hand, the brain is wet and squishy. On the other hand, what does three pounds of God feel like? It's an absurd question. It violates everything you know, or think you know, about God, and for that matter, about yourself. Who is it that's got the whole world in his hand? Sky, sea, God, and you beside. Is it one or is it two? Where do you draw the line? Where do you put the period? The poem is using words not to say something, but to jolt you out of a too easily assumed certainty about where the lines are and where you stand. It creates doubt. It makes you wonder. When you feel the heft of it, not the abstract ideas and notions in your head, but conscious awareness itself, the palpable feel of a living body with a beating heart, you know at once that all dualities Fresh flesh and spirit, finite and infinite, inside and outside, self and other, differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. A distinction without a difference. Not one, not two. And you, beside, holding everything at arm's length, 
a bounded subject that knows the names of all the isolated objects, but not the silent space between the words that hold them all together. Form dissolves into indeterminacy, emptiness, exactly form. Earthiness and mystery are not far apart. All the while, this you is breathing in the sky and drinking in the sea ladled from a bucket, completely intimate with the unseen God, the awakened one, hidden in a handful of flesh. <laughs>